This is the Real World DevOps Podcast, and I'm your host, Mike Julian. I'm setting out to meet the most interesting people doing awesome work in the world of DevOps, from the creators of your favorite tools to the organizers of amazing conferences. From the authors of great books to fantastic public speakers, I want to introduce you to the most interesting people I can find. This episode is sponsored by the lovely folks at Influx Data. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably also interested in better monitoring tools, and that's where Influx comes in. Personally, I'm a huge fan of their products, and I often recommend them to my own clients. You're probably familiar with their time series database, InfluxDB, but you may not be as familiar with their other tools. Telegraph for metrics collection from systems, Chronograph for visualization, and Capacitor for real-time streaming. All of these are available as open source and as a hosted SaaS solution. You can check all of it out at InfluxData.com. My thanks to InfluxData for helping make this podcast possible. So robots, you apparently are working at some company that does observability for robots. And I'm a little confused because like, what, what in the world is this all about? Do robots actually need observability? Um, yeah, so I, I work at a company called Formant. Um, we are about a year and a half old and we're focused on a lot of problems um, in supporting robots, but uh, specifically observability for robotics is, is very important to us. And I think it's uh, representative of a type of concern that hasn't historically been important in robotics, um, but is increasingly as we are shipping robots more and more to customers, um, deploying fleets of robots, deploying them in semi-structured environments, and um, generally seeing them their numbers increase in the wild. So these robots, are these like Johnny Five style robots, or, or are they more like 3CPO or the, the Terminator? Uh, like, or Wally, like, are these more Wally, or maybe even the really terrifying stuff that General Dynamics is putting out? Right. So, we like to maintain a flexible definition of, of a robot. And um, I think that's maybe just a way of avoiding the definition question. Um, I'm, I'm sure the, uh, the robots in the singularity will be very happy about your loose definition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know. <clears throat> the vast number of, of deployed robots in the world as sort of traditionally defined are probably in the space of uh, automotive manufacturing. That's where we see uh, bolted down work cells of um, high payload, position controlled, heavy metal robots uh, performing assembly and welding and, and applications like that. But the fastest growing part of the robotics market is actually in service robotics and in the deployment of robotics into less structured environments. So that's environments like logistics and warehousing, retail, agriculture. Um, and this is where uh, we have started focusing uh, is in robots and semi-structured environments. Um, we do think that we have a lot to offer uh, industrial robotics as well, but it hasn't been our focus to date. Mm. I saw on your website, there's this really interesting photo of a, a robot kind of strolling down the aisle at the grocery store. Is that indicative of the kind of robots we're talking about primarily? It is, and we may have a little bit of a insight into the way things are going just from 
the customers we're talking to every day, but um, we are seeing more and more robots deployed into retail, for example, which is what that, that image shows. And the applications at the moment are typically in things like floor cleaning, inventory scanning. Those are the, the front of house applications that, that we see the most often. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, in order fulfillment and logistics and warehousing, uh, we see uh, a lot of additional applications of robotics. Gotcha. Uh, I want to take a little tangent here and ask, how in the world did you get into this? Like, I don't think anyone comes out of school and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build robots and observability. Yeah, I, I came to robotics uh, through work at a company called Bot and Dolly about seven or eight years ago that was focused on applying robotics to challenges in film and visual effects. And uh, I had an opportunity to get involved in novel applications of industrial robotics at that company. We were acquired into Google, and um, that was around the time that a number of robotics companies uh, were acquired, including Boston Dynamics, who you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and inside Google had the chance to see how all of our peers were thinking about these problems. Um, we ultimately left uh, Google about a year and a half ago uh, because we were excited to ship products. And uh, <laughs> and the timeline for that is... There, there's, there's a very subtle ding. <laughs> <in> the, <world. laughs> the timeline is, is long um, at Google uh, for shipping products. But the experience was, was really invaluable. Um, and personally, I was always interested in the tools and infrastructure side of robotics. And through building tools to support these teams inside Google and through seeing how people thought about problems like observability, software deployment, configuration management, in the context of robotics, it became clear that there's actually a huge opportunity um, to bring some of the best practices that have been developing for decades in the backend distributed systems world to the robotics world. And that's where I find a lot of inspiration. And the problem is similar enough that we have a lot to learn, um, but different enough that it does require some, some new thinking and some new technology. So that's a, that's a really great segue into really good question of what is it actually, what does it look like to do observability and robots? You, you mentioned all these tools and all these techniques that infrastructure people rely on every day, uh, config management, that sort of thing. Uh, how is that being applied in your work? So the fundamental requirement of observability in robotics is, is really no different than it is in monitoring backend systems. We want to maintain visibility into the state of the system, um, use that information to uh, allow humans to respond to changes in internal system state uh, and also automated systems to respond to those changes. But there's a few key differences. Uh, one is that the data types that are relevant to us in robotics are often different than they are in backend distributed systems. So we have sensors generating a lot of data about the physical world. Those data types are often geometric or three-dimensional um, or media-based. And the infrastructure and tooling to ingest and index and visualize that type of data is different. The workflows that we use to debug issues are different. Uh, they often require making sense of a lot of that geometric and visual data. Another difference is that centralizing data is often challenging from a field-deployed robot relative to a server in a data center. So the availability of network resources is often unpredictable. 
uh, and we need to have contingency plans in place for uh, when network is, is unavailable. And relative to an IoT application, there's sort of a different set of resources available to us at the edge, as opposed to extremely constrained IoT devices that might be running on bare metal. We typically have access to an operating system. We might even have access to a GPU. And that allows us to make different trade-offs in the system design um, to maintain observability into these remote machines. It sounds like you're, due to the the perhaps limited availability of network or the unknown availability of network, and especially with robots out doing their thing in the field, you're probably pushing a lot of decisions and logic to the edge, to the robots themselves. Is that right? That's right. And one thing we've learned over the course of building our product is that one of those decisions that's really important to our customers is actually decisions about what data is being centralized and when. Oh, that's interesting. So typically in a backend monitoring setup, we define a set of metrics that are continuously pushed or pulled mm-hmm. uh, at, a, at a common rate. Um, in the robotics world, we may care about different types of data around different events of interest, um, different resolutions of data at different times of day or around, say, a particularly sensitive manipulation uh, behavior. Um, and giving our customers those levers to dynamically turn on and off what telemetry is being sent and uh, what resolution is something that I think is kind of an interesting problem to work on. And yeah. Uh, specific to the robotics domain. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm imagining that perhaps some of the problems you're running into are things like, uh, in the example of of the grocery store, a a robot going down an aisle and hits a spill in the middle of the aisle. What what do you do about that? How how does the robot even know that's a thing? And how are you... That that would be a really prime candidate for we need to record this information because the robot needs to know next time like how do we do how do we handle this uh, how are you recording such things like this is not just oh well the CPU is X now it's much more visual mm-hmm. yeah so that fundamental limit of how does the robot know that something bad happened is a limit that we'll always have to confront. Um, and I think, you know, similarly to backend systems, we often have to rely on, you know, second order or sort of um, best guess indications that something has gone wrong. Um, in the case of the spill, it could be that uh, we are seeing um, wheel slippage, which is something that we can detect in the robot control stack. And that type of event for us might mean that the um, the logs from the last 30 seconds uh, are, are dumped and prioritized for upload to a centralized server. Mm-hmm. It, it occurs to me that you would that you would have some granularity challenges too in that let's say I have a web app and it's serving whatever customers. Uh, it having problems for five minutes is probably fine. Like, yeah, people are going to be upset, but it's not the end of the world. If I have a robot spinning in circles for five <laughs> minutes, someone's going to be really upset about that, which means you would have to be able to know about these problems within seconds. Whereas 
in the standard web uh, web operations world, for us, it's more like minutes. Is that right? I think that's right. And I think it gets to some of the safety challenges that come with deploying these systems in the physical world alongside humans. Mm-hmm. And that's really a, a system design problem that we cannot solve entirely here. <laughs> that's, that's really the responsibility of the, of the application developer to make sure that there's sufficient layers of, of safety and local autonomy mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of that system design that, that keeps people safe uh, and hopefully keeps their customers happy. So the stakes of, of mistakes are high, but the, the challenge of, of, of observability into those mistakes is, is also high. Uh, that's what I think makes it a really interesting space to work in. Yeah, yeah I'm just imagining being in the grocery store and being run over by one of these things. <laughs> like that would be a very unpleasant experience. I agree. Uh, hopefully, we like to we like to make sure that our customers know that it, it is not our responsibility as a observability <laughs> platform to prevent that from happening. Um, right. We, uh, but that would be the worst case scenario. I agree. I, I'm going to assume that you're not the first solution to ever come to market to solve this problem. There is a, a long legacy of, of SCADA systems that have been deployed in industrial control settings. Ooh, yes. Um, and Big fan of ICS. Okay. <laughs> and anybody who's worked with them knows that they are a proven technology um, that need a specific need for a specific set of users. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, they, they don't really apply to this world of semi-structured robots uh, wandering around um, retail stores. Um, and while we are not the first, I, I would say that we are part of the first wave of products uh, that have emerged really just in the last year to address these concerns. And, and I think it's because to date, robotics companies have built everything in-house and we're seeing a trend similar to what we saw in you know 15 years ago in, in in the web world, which is that uh, there's a growing realization that not every part of the stack is, is central to a company's mm-hmm. value proposition. And um, we're hoping to you know, take some problems off people's plates. Yeah, I, I'm glad you went that direction. That was going to be my question is how, how have people been solving this to begin with before you came along? It, it sounds like they're just writing a bunch of stuff themselves and hoping for the best. Yes, that, that's what we see. Uh, it's extremely fragmented. I think the standardization that has happened in the robotics ecosystem that we're targeting has been really around solving problems of single agent autonomy. And mm-hmm. for that, you know, there are great open source tools out there like the robot operating system that have really gone a long way towards standardizing approaches to those problems. But when it comes to thinking about logs and monitoring and fleet management, um, Really, it's been extremely fragmented. And one challenge is that the people that constitute robotics companies often come from a very deep robotics research background and um, don't have experience building and maintaining uh, cloud infrastructure. And um, as a result, uh, we see a lot of avoidable mistakes being made. Um, So so that's another place we see some opportunity. I want to talk about your tech stack a bit. Like, what's going on under the hood with all this? Mm-hmm. Are are you using the same tools that operations engineers are going to recognize? Have you completely built stuff from scratch? What's going on there? That's a great question. So, we're trying to strike a balance between building what needs to be built 
but not what doesn't. A great example is uh, our, our approach to exposing business intelligence uh, capability on top of the telemetry that we've collected is not to try to, to build that in-house in any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, we are kind of leveraging the workflows that already exist for pushing data into a data lake and, and running business intelligence on top of that. Uh, on the other hand, building the monitoring that's required to monitor not just scalar metric data, but also streams of images and geometric data is something that would be hard to ask of existing server monitoring tools. Mm-hmm. So that's an area we've made investments. Uh, we've made investments in the functionality at the edge and some of that sort of dynamic uh, instrumentation that, that we were talking about. And we've made investments in some of the visualization because obviously looking at 3D data is very different than looking at text logs. <laughs> yeah, like I, I'm just trying to think about how I would solve that problem and coming up with just a whole lot of blanks. Like the time series database, oh, that's easy. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's it's not an impossible problem, uh, but visualizing 3D data in a way that I can go back and look at it, that sounds tricky. <laughs> yeah, that's what makes it fun, though. You know, for for a bit, I was thinking that maybe you were just collecting a whole bunch of different data points and assembling them into an image. But it sounds like you're actually taking image snapshots from the edge and storing those. Yeah, so we can consume full or reduced resolution images, point clouds, maps, data types like that. Biggest challenge is really in making those trade-offs between when are the resources available to, to do that compression at the edge, when is the network available to centralize that data. And that's why we've been really focused on the capabilities of, of the software running at the edge. Mm. I imagine you probably have somewhat limited retention on the robots themselves. Are you talking minutes, days, hours, months? Well, it's uh, it, it definitely depends on the customer. Uh, we often see a tiered approach, as, as you would expect, where um, mm-hmm. you know LiDAR data that might be publishing at a kilohertz, generating gigabytes per minute, uh, has a very low retention period. Um, Text data is obviously easier to keep around for a long time, um, but we do have the luxury of, of typically, you know, full SSD uh, uh, resources locally, and that does give us retention better than what you would get on an, a Raspberry or an IoT device. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to talk about uh, about failures in these robots a little bit. Mm-hmm. It would seem to me, in my naive understanding of robots, that you know everything that's on a robot. You know what's there. You know what isn't. So it seems to me that you could predict all of the different failures that could happen. But with our example of the spill on the floor, we clearly get into, well, maybe not. So what what kinds of failures are common in these robots? And uh, I think you mentioned earlier that there's, there's a whole lot of the unknown unknowns that you're getting into as well. Can you talk more, more about those? Sure. So I think we can reason pretty well about the internal state of of the robot software. But where it gets challenging is that these robotic systems often, uh, well, they they obviously include hardware components and they're interacting with an external world that can be very hard to reason about. So the failure modes are really diverse. And, um, you know, to the the question of, of what types of failure modes do we see often a good example is mobile robots often encounter uh, mislocalization. So uh, a, 
low confidence uh, about a position in a map. And this can be solved in a few ways. One approach that we see some companies taking is a shared autonomy approach where uh, there's actually support from a human operator in the case that a robot identifies itself as mislocalized um, that can sort of help the robot get back on track. Um, so that is something I think sort of unique to robotics and a, a trend that we're seeing. Is this mislocalization failure like the equivalent of you thinking there's another stair on the stairway? <laughs> well, that might be hard to detect. I think it's more like, um, I think it's more like moving around a, a retail environment for which a static map exists, but finding that um, the inventory manager has actually moved a shelf overnight. Oh. <laughs> and all of a sudden my, my slam algorithm, which usually has a very high degree of confidence about my position in a map is, is returning very low confidences about whether I'm on aisle nine or aisle 10. It's more like your significant other rearranging the living room. While you're exactly. Yeah. Or in the middle of the night. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Got it. <laughs> so that that's one failure mode uh, that we see, you know, another failure mode that's common is, is at the hardware layer. And, Again, this is typically pretty hard to predict, except through sort of second-order measurements in software. Um, but what we try to do to support that use case is to just give people uh, good visibility into what hardware is deployed where. And as anybody who's worked on fleet management problems before knows, that's a tricky problem in itself, especially when you're swapping out components, mm -hmm. doing repairs. Um, but that's an area where we definitely you know, see pain and opportunity for, for robotics. Right. I, how do you decide where the fault detection should take place? So sometimes it should happen on the robot. Other times it should happen centrally. How do you decide which is which? It's tricky. That's, that's pretty application specific. And uh, as an infrastructure company, we don't know the answer to that um, as well as, as our customers do. Um, so I, I think that's where, uh, the domain expertise of of people solving, say, inventory scanning problems in retail really really comes into play. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what we're trying to do is is give people hooks in the right places to uh, do that monitoring wherever in the stack makes sense. Do you ever advise uh, your customers on how to on like what's possible? I imagine that like when I worked in retail a, a million years ago. I if I had a robot sitting there in front of me, I wouldn't be even be sure what I could do mm. with it. Like I could imagine a few things, but I'm sure you being experts in this particular area can imagine all sorts of other things. Yeah, we definitely talk to customers and, and are happy to consult on, on some of that system design. Um, but they're often very good at what they do. And when it comes to knowing their own hardware, knowing their own, local software stack, um, you know, there's, there's only so much value we can provide. Uh, so Mike, I'm, I'm curious for you, sort of how you see observability and monitoring practices extending beyond back and distributed systems. And, and, and you know, I, I'm sure we're just one of, of a number of domains that is starting to sort of borrow and, and steal. Um, where else are you, are you seeing this happen? Man, that... <sighs> That is a fascinating topic. Um, listeners can go back to a, a previous episode. I believe it'll be um, 
the episode was my friend Andrew Rogers. Uh, Andrew and I discussed the observability in manufacturing and, and observability in industrial control systems, uh, SCADA, which we were talking about earlier, and um, his work now with like building scale and city scale monitoring and observability, which is absolutely fascinating stuff. He made a comment that the manufacturing world was really great at coming up with the principles of uh, process engineering, but they didn't have the technical ability to write the software to execute on those principles. So then at some point, software engineering and operations, the, the technical operations, found these principles. But because we're experts in writing software, we started to, to do the execution. And now manufacturing is taking all that and applying it to them. So like it's this really cool uh, two-way street that's happened over the past 10 years or so. I would guess that it, that includes some, uh, some sensing of, of not just software systems, but of physical physical. System yeah, well. so it's it's actually it is not just of software; it's actually almost entirely physical stuff, and it's where the things like a I have a boiler, or I have a a furnace, or hell, I have a road, and like I have my road has sensors embedded in it. Well, I'm gathering all this data about environmental conditions and traffic and things like this. And then shoving that into some software system that is going to do stuff and send that information back out into the physical world to change the physical world. And the technologies being used here are the same technologies that we've been talking about. Like they're making heavy use of uh, Grafana and time series database, like Cassandra, like um, Cassandra and Kafka for streaming. Like all this is standard web operations mm-hmm. tooling that you would expect in any monitoring platform but it's being used for this real world physical interactions. And I think this is super cool because it's, it's very similar to what's going on here where you're collecting this physical world data, shoving into software that we would all know and recognize if we saw it, making decisions about it and using that to change what's going on in the real world. Yeah. I think the, the, the control loop element of this is really interesting. Um, you know, in software, we think typically the control loop might involve, horizontal auto-scaling or um, traffic shifting or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the physical world, we get to actually, you know, move metal and plastic or, uh, or, or turn <laughs> right. cameras or, um, you know, reach out and touch things, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. The, um, it, it, in a lot of ways, the, the impact is bigger and the risk is also True. bigger. Yeah. Like, so we're using software to control, um, traffic lights it doesn't it doesn't take a genius to see that that could potentially turn out very badly Absolutely. Uh, same with like manufacturing furnaces these are things that get to a bajillion degrees and we're using software to monitor those to see like what's the temperature on this well one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is a furnace getting too hot yes that sucks but it's not a huge issue it's actually the furnace getting too cold hmm. that's a problem so if the furnace gets too cold, then everything in it solidifies. Well, these furnaces haven't been shut off for 20 plus years. Wow. So when it solidifies, the furnace wow. is done. Like it's time to replace it. And that's a million dollar investment simply because software that was paying attention to it didn't catch a failure in time. Yeah. And I, I think for me, that kind of points at the deep domain knowledge that people who've been working in these industries for their entire career, uh, 
um, really bring to, to bear on the problem, you know, deep knowledge of, of mm -hmm. furnace behavior, you know, it's not something I, 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 could, right. I could speak to, but I think that it's really exciting to me if, if people with that domain expertise are empowered with, you know, software that, that lets them do things um, that they've always wanted to do. Um, and I think the, you know, I think when we talk in the robotics world about these different waves of robotics startups and the early robotics startups were all founded by robotics PhDs who knew they could build robots and were looking for a problem. I think we're starting to see robotics kind of like the AI people at, uh, at MIT. Yep. All the early AI companies were just people from the AI lab. Yep. And maybe looking for problems uh, with, you know, looking with a hammer, looking for a, a nail. Um, right. Yep. The, you know, more recent crop of robotic startups that I think has much higher chance of success uh, are people coming in with some deep domain expertise and looking at robotics as just one tool among many that they might apply to solving, you know, a real problem. Right. Yeah, incidentally, for anyone that just heard that particular comment, that's the like foundation of building a business. Yeah, <laughs> you would you would hope. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, d having having domain expertise in a certain problem or in a certain area, and then looking for ways to solve that problem is a much better way to go about life than coming with a hammer looking for a nail. But we know a lot of the latter. I'm sure. <laughs> Right. Yeah. We, we, a whole bunch of us, when we really know Python, let's go find problems that we can use yeah. Python for. Uh, as it turns out, that doesn't usually yeah. go so well. I'm curious when, when you see people applying monitoring and observability to these new domains, do you, do you see people making this, making mistakes that have already been made in, in that world? Uh, or do you think that people are benefiting from kind of the recent developments in, in monitoring? I'd, I honestly think it's a bit of both. The uh, One of the challenges that I'm seeing is that you have all these people from the manufacturing or building management, like these, this is two domains that I'm that are top of mind for me. Um, so you see all these people that have those deep domain expertise and they're taking uh, tooling and processes that we've come up with in ops and software and applying them. And, while they're able to apply them fairly well to their domain expertise, what they're actually missing is all the uh, domain expertise from the software world. So things like uh, how do you how do you do effective alerting? It's not like every time a value passes a number, page someone. Like we know that doesn't work. Uh, and like software engineering, we're still uh, we I think we're pretty well at the forefront of how to do that and like the different anti-patterns there. But then when you look at places like, um, like nursing and medicine, mm -hmm. they're, they're not there yet. Like they, they know it's a problem, but they don't have good solutions. Well, we kind of have solutions. Their heart, their environment's much higher stakes than ours is. So you can see why they're kind of hesitant to adopt some of the solutions we've, we've come up with. Which yeah, is really understandable. I'm very excited to see how that plays out. Yeah, me too. I think it's kind of it's going both ways. Uh, manufacturing, building, management like they're they're clearly doing really cool stuff with the stuff we've built and stuff we've designed. And I think for the most part, the all the monitoring vendors in um, outside of those domains are not even mm -hmm. seeing what's going on. 
like I happen to know that uh, Influx InfluxDB and Grafana and Cassandra and Kafka are being used in places that these companies mm-hmm. don't even know they're being used in. And that's super cool. But on the other hand, that's that's pretty shitty for everyone. Like it would be really helpful if we had a more of a dialogue between these two groups. But yeah, I think yet. I think people who, who care about tooling and, and infrastructure for, for operations, uh, there's just a ton of opportunity in, in some of the domains you just mentioned. Um, right. Like most of the opportunity in the world is not within the software domain. It's in non-software domains, like places where you wouldn't expect software to be. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Robots. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, now that we've come full circle, uh, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Mike. This was fun. Uh, and to everyone else listening in, uh, thank you for listening to the Real World DevOps Podcast. If you want to stay up to date on the latest episodes, you can find us at realworlddevops.com and on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. I'll see you in the next episode.